Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tiago Forte. He's a productivity coach, founder of Forte Labs, and an author. The world has far, far too much information in it. Humans don't do well when they're overwhelmed with incoming signals, and yet we can't stop ourselves from wanting to acquire more interesting insights. Thankfully, Tiago has created one of the world's most popular systems to capture, organize, distill, and express pretty much anything. Expect to learn the most important apps Tiago uses to enhance his productivity, why everyone needs to go through an insane efficiency stage in life, how he's moving beyond pure productivity and into something more holistic, why read later apps can save your life, how to use the relationship between productivity and creativity, and much more. Don't forget this Thursday, Jocko Willink, Modern Wisdom. Just set your alarm or press subscribe, which will be an alarm for you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Tiago Forte. Tiago Forte, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Chris. It's been a while. Three and a half years it's been. A very long while. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to... I don't... <clears throat> in fact, I very rarely do follow-up episodes, so I'm glad we can have a part two. Me too. Are you... Would you consider yourself the new David Allen now of 2022? So other people have said that I I try to be modest, but I mean that's my that's my aspiration to be honest. If I can make even half the impact he made on the world, I'd be I'd go to my grave happy. Why? Why is he a hero? <clears throat> I think just the way he did it. There's a lot of thought leaders, a lot of productivity authors, a lot of people who have created methodologies, but I think the fact that he he took it to its full potential. I think is the main thing. It's so it would be so easy to just write one book after another, sort of roam around to different subjects, make a name for yourself, but he just spent decade upon decade really just translating his principles into every format, every medium, every channel to really make sure it reached, you know, the ends of the earth. And I just admire that kind of persistence on one thing because because it's so important for people. The fact that people still use the GTD method 30 years after he first wrote about it, I think kind of shows the test of time. So given the fact that you're someone who spends a lot of time thinking about systems and productivity and stuff like that, how do you and how can other people avoid obsessing over productivity too much? Because 
looking at productivity can become a task in it, like a Sisyphean task in itself. And you can end up being super unproductive because of your constant obsession about tools and techniques and tactics. Yeah, it's a great question. It can easily become a hobby. It can become a lifestyle, right? So the way I think of this is productivity is a phase. <clears throat> there's a career in, or there's a, a, a phase in your career, in your job, in your business, where you should obsess about about productivity. You should just make it as efficient as possible. But then it's productivity. It's like reading and writing and arithmetic. It's this this foundational, fundamental layer. Right. Like like if you don't have just the basic ability to like say you're going to do something and then do it to just clearly go from step one to step two to step three, which is what productivity is. Nothing else you do. No other source of leverage is going to work for you. You don't have to perfect it. You don't have to take it to level 10. Just get to like level six or seven. (laughs) Um, And then you move on to essentially higher sources of leverage, which are creativity, which are management, leadership. Uh, creating content, leveraging systems. Like there's all these things that, that are much higher order, but that you need that basic personal productivity to take advantage of. Yeah, I like that. I think um, a lot of the time when we're thinking about the stuff that we do in life and the tasks that we have in front of us and the um, personal development that we're doing, we look at what we're working on now and forget that we're going to complete that at some point. Or at least I do. I, my time discounting basically doesn't exist. And I just see an endless... Uh, let's say that I'm working on my overhead position in the gym or I'm learning the Pomodoro technique or something. That's it. That's me for the rest of time. But it's not. It's not. You, it, the, you're right. The analogy is precisely correct between arithmetic or learning maths or learning something in school, right? You don't go back and learn what two plus two equals now. No. It's there. You now are able to build off the back of that knowledge. So if you were to say, uh, if you were to create a high level uh, syllabus, or if you were to just pick the main things that people need to know, what would uh, your productivity driver's license, what would it consist of? Yeah, it's great. <clears throat> I, I really like thinking about this because people always want to know the maximalist, most sophisticated, powerful, advanced version. Now, I minimum, use... minimum viable productivity system. All the way. I mean, in school, you know, a C, 70% is passing. Just try to pass. <laughs> Uh, I, I would really point people to code, the methodology, which is the the heart of my book and my everything I teach. And the, the important thing is to realize it's not a, a tool, it's an, it's, a, it's an activity. So you need some way that the four letters of code, capture, organize, distill, express, you need some way of capturing. It doesn't have to look any particular way. It could be writing on your arm, it could be capturing voice memos, it could be bookmarking websites. There's just so many ways just have one, just one reliable way to capture content, you're great, right? Organize, which I would just say is some way of organizing that content. Doesn't have to be my para approach, doesn't have to be by category, Does definitely shouldn't be very meticulous, but some way of adding structure to your notes. And then the same for distill, some way of distilling, some way of expressing. It's almost like there's an analogy here to personal finance. In personal finance, you need to earn, you need to spend, you need to save and you need to invest, right? Everyone, for the most part, who is beyond the most basic needs is doing those four things. But you, I don't think most people would say, oh, I have a personal financial system. This is my personal financial workflow. No, they just kind of generally know that those four things are happening somewhere in their lives. And that's enough to live a financially successful life. Same goes for knowledge. 
why do why does anyone need a second brain? Yeah, <clears throat> it's funny. I often tell people you don't. And this is actually a good little accountability is whatever you're trying to do, like writing or podcasting or building a business, there is someone out there is someone out there, many people who are doing that without a second brain. Like obviously, right? <laughs> there are people writing books with no particular note-taking system, people building incredible businesses, having the relationships they want to have, reaching their goals. So it's not so much like a lot of self-improvement authors or people with a system will say, no, all of your success, your entire future rests <laughs> on this thing. And I, I have to just be honest and say like a second brain is kind of optional. Um, but what I would say is for certain people in certain situations who are people who have to deal with a lot of information, who have to make sense of that information and make decisions on it, who have to create things, whether content or events or proposals or slides, if there's some kind of creative output, you will save unimaginable amounts of time, energy, headache, stress, and have just much greater peace of mind. It with a more a second brain is really just a more rigorous approach to doing those things that you're already doing. Is there a danger when you start to do the second brain thing, which I've been familiar with for three or four years, I think, since I first read your blog post on it. One of the guys I'm very good friends with, Youssef, basically became addicted to indexing information. Um, he saw any potentially entertaining or useful thing that he ever consumed or heard on the radio or whatever as fodder to be put into his personal knowledge management system so yeah. given that the sort of people that are going to be attracted to building a second brain are probably the kind of people that already have a predisposition to like indexing information and not forgetting cool stuff that they've learned or may want to use in future what is a good way for someone to temper that um propensity yeah i feel like those people is me <laughs> you are these people yeah, I mean that's 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 my whole audience. That's my that's my target market. Uh, I mean, if if there was a, someone out there, and there are many people who have no interest, propensity, or desire to do this, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, you know, imagine me working with like an elite athlete or artist or musician, being like, okay, you need to set aside, you know, your craft, and you really need to sit here at your computer and just like take notes on things. <laughs> I'm basically talking to people who can't help but take notes, can't help, who, who their the organization of their digital life is actually the roadblock from a, a like a psychological point of view. They can't move forward because of the clutter and the disorder. Um, so if you're that kind of person, what I would say is <clears throat> to just shift how you're spending your time from consumption to creation, right? Like this is this is a very powerful exercise. Just Look at the time that you spend. This can be very ballpark. What percentage of, say, your time, how many minutes a day or hours per week are dedicated to consuming information, right? It's probably 100% or close to 100%. What would it look like? Just imagine the possibility that you could shift 10% of that over here to the other column, which is creating things out of the information you consume. Just try it. I don't know. Maybe you won't like it. Maybe you'll decide, you know what, Tiago, I, I, I'm fine just, you know, consuming this stuff. But if you find that you start to have benefits, you're like all sorts of things I, I'm willing to bet are going to happen. You will feel more confident in what you 
consume and what you know. You'll start to make connections with people as you share this, these things you're creating. You will um, develop your own ideas and your own ways of thinking about this content. All these things will start to arise. And if that happens, just keep shifting hours from the first column to the second column. I feel like at this point, I spend probably 70 or 80% of my time creating things. It's like, I already know enough. I've read a lot of books. <laughs> I only need to consume a little bit just to keep my ideas circulating. And mostly I just want to produce things that are going to benefit others. That is kind of like a macro version of what we were talking about earlier on. You know, you learn the foundations and then you start to implement. There's a, I first learned it in uh, Atomic Habits, but I'm going to guess it's probably uh, commonly held productivity wisdom in your world. Uh, the explore exploit uh, yes. spectrum. And yes. the, for the people that aren't familiar, basically that when you first begin out pretty much doing anything, but especially in a career or in a life, the goal is to explore more than you exploit. So you don't actually know what you're good at or what's going to be effective for you or strategies and tools and stuff. And then over time, you're supposed to begin to discriminate more towards exploit, i.e. you go narrow and deep on a few things that you know have the highest points of leverage and then you continue to move through there. That is something that's very attractive to me because there is a never good enough sensation. There is a, a, a feeling in the back of a lot of people's minds that they're not ready. And even if they start to create and start to see success, that there's still some sense of lack. And I think that after a while, just knowing, look, I have enough minimum viable information to get me through. And here's the, here's the big thing. Execution is so much more rare than planning is. Oh. The vast majority of people on the internet are people that plan and pontificate and talk yeah. and make make ideas, yeah. but don't actually end up executing. There's this interesting statistic around the fact that planning is among the top 10 words across all of LinkedIn bios, and execution doesn't even make the top 100. <laughs> so what does that tell us? It tells us that people are discriminating toward those that can have good ideas, but you know, if planning is the uh, numerator or if, if, if planning is the constant, then execution is the multiplier, right? Yeah. And um, you had this great tweet a while ago, man, and I, I must have quoted it so many times. Um, a paradoxical, paradoxical thing about people who consistently choose the most high leverage activity is their efforts have a rough-edged, half-assed quality because polishing things to perfection is a low leverage activity. And someone <laughs> replied, someone replied, some guy out of nowhere that said, perfectionism is a nice way to hide from shipping at a pace necessary to find what works. Mm. I hadn't seen that reply. That's brilliant. Seriously good. Yeah, it's really true. Wow. Yeah, you touched on a, a, few, a few really profound things. Explore and exploit. My version of that, <clears throat> that word exploit is not very... Uh, not very very politically correct these days, so I prefer uh, con uh, divergence and convergence, which is the same thing. It's just you need to be exposed to all the options, and then you need to choose one and give everything, go into that option. Uh, and gosh, this is a deep concept. You see failures on both sides, people not exploring enough or not exploiting enough, or cycling back and forth between those two often, or not realizing when it's time to transition from one to the next, right? And, and I think the crazy thing is like in the past, only like CEOs of like big corporations needed to think about this, right? Or like generals, right? Like army people. Now, each one of us is faced with such a vast array of opportunities. We have the agency and the necessity to choose among them so it's like we now have to think at this extremely high-level strategic 
uh, you know, level in a way that just wasn't, our parents just didn't have to do. Yeah, man. And I think as well that what that leads people to do is to continue to explore, right? It drills them into a constant scouting mentality. And that's where the uh, perfectionism is procrastination, masquerading as quality control thing comes in that, look, you, you need to just get to a stage where you start shipping work. And the difference between putting something, putting two things out at 95 or one thing out at 99, you're going to be able to do them with the same amount of work and time because to get from 95 to 99 is basically impossible or it's a huge, huge lift. But yeah. you're going to learn so much more. And I'm sure that you're familiar with that study that a university professor did where he got students, it was a photography class, and he got students to take a ton of photos. And one set of students worked for the entire semester on a single photo, and the rest of them were just told to take as many photos as possible and then submit one at the end. And the students that, lo and behold, had taken a shit ton of photos ended up having the best work because they'd iterated, right? They'd learned what worked and what didn't. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, very, that's it. That's the principle. What's a commonplace book? Commonplace book is the the analog forerunner of what I'm trying to do. <clears throat> uh, I'm a big student of history. I read the only genre that I read more of than history is science fiction. So basically, I only read about the far future or the far past. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I have this, this series of tweets where I joke that presence is overrated. Like the present time is like. It's so limited. There's only one present, but infinite pasts and infinite futures. <laughs> I made all the uh, the Buddhist Buddhist Twitter crowd mad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just when I can find a parallel in history for anything, I'm just ten times more confident in it. I don't think there's anything new under the sun, really. It's just repeated. Where did you and- first hear about a commonplace book? Yeah, I think I first heard of, I don't remember exactly. It's been out, there's been mention of it, you know, on the internet for some time. Uh, but getting, really going back to the source and, and studying it, it reoccurs throughout history. <clears throat> Especially during times of unusual change and uncertainty. And times where things are really, where there's sort of like some revolution, right? Like the, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, uh, antiquity, ancient Greek times. It's like, when there was basically too much information, information overload, at various points throughout history, someone or some people said, hey, let's just get the parts that matter, put them in one, usually book, and then this will be our guide and our reference and our roadmap for what to do next. Any famous people from history that you found that had commonplace books? I mean, so many. It's almost like who didn't? I mean, John Locke is a famous one. Uh, John Milton, the uh, the English writer. Uh, a lot of English people, a lot of French. I think mostly we know about the European examples the most. But I also found examples across different cultures in China. They had something similar in Japan, in Poland, um, in a few other places. Uh, I can't think of a lot of specific names, but it's it's really funny. It's it's almost like there's this secret undercurrent through intellectual history that only pops up here and there. Because in most cases, these great thinkers and artists, they either were embarrassed by this kind of underlying creative process. They'll be like, oh, that's just something I do. I just, it's kind of embarrassing. I just write little scraps of paper and and put them in the, the drawer next to my bed. Or they actually don't even see it. It's, it's kind of invisible to them, 
right? It's like just an invisible part of their process. So I've I've tried I've written some posts on my blog and tried to kind of surface these examples, but uh, a lot of great a lot of great examples from throughout history. That's a really interesting thing to talk about the fact that the people who are at the absolute peak of their craft are often the ones that are either far too aware or far too unaware of the way that they get to it. Now, obviously, what you've had over the last, whatever, five to 10 years has been this huge proliferation of creators that actually deconstruct these sort of structures, you know, people like you, or maybe an Ali Abdal or someone like that, who their job is to look at it with a real fine grained sort of tooth comb. But the reverse is also true as well. And what, what you really want is to try and find someone who was unbelievably effective but had no idea what their system was those are the people that you want i don't know like a yes. a, a productivity anthropologist or something to go and study in the wild these yeah. people who are unbelievably efficient because yeah. by design a lot of the people that are productivity minded and are using productivity style tools in a um conscious way are all using the same tools Right? Yeah. No one's really experimenting that much because they go and watch some of your stuff or Ali's stuff or David's stuff mm-hmm. or whatever, and they come up with their own version of that. Who are the people yeah. that are the you know the patient zeros of the productivity movement? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I've noticed this too. Is yeah, this is really this is really a missing piece. There's really a gap kind of in the market. Um, often. <laughs> I'll listen to interviews by like the most well-known people, like the most famous actors, writers, directors, whatever it is. And they say these things, these little trite truism cliches, you know, like even like courses I've taken on masterclass, like what, what does that show the authors, the author or the actor studio, these kind of like kind of pretty in-depth things. And then they'll say like, well, what's your secret? Oh, you just got to, you know, keep persisting and endure until the end. It's like, okay, these are these are quotes for Hallmark cards. But I, I also can't blame them because they literally don't remember. They do not remember. Not only do they are they not aware of what they do now because it becomes completely unconscious, but do you remember what your creative process was like or, or any detail of it from 10 years ago? Not like, even slightly, you, no. You'd be, it's impossible. And so they're, they, they want to give something to the audience and they want to provide something, but they're basically just tossing off something from the top of their head that they know is going to get an ah from the audience. And I'm just like, this has to change. We need, like you said, to become anthropologists. Look at people who are maybe just beginning now, by the way. They might not be those super impressive celebrities. Like people maybe just ahead of you, just a couple steps down the path, deconstruct what they do. You know, we, we just did a... Last week, published a YouTube video on our channel, Deconstructing Ali Abdal's Process. It's funny that you mention him. It's our most popular YouTube video ever. And it's because of this. Like, even Ali was like, oh, I didn't realize I did it this way. And his team is like, oh, we didn't realize this happened. And then all his subscribers are like, wow, I, mean, I never realized. It's like, it's news to everyone. <laughs> That's a, it's, it's interesting that you could say it's maybe even useful to the person that you're studying. But yeah, man, I mean, the... I had Danny Trejo, you know, Danny Trejo, the, the nice. Hollywood superstar. He was on the show yes. last year and he, I was asking him because obviously he'd been to jail a bunch and he definitely was not a trained actor for the Film Actors Guild. And I was asking him about the sort of advice that he'd been given about acting. And the, there was a scene that he had to do where he had to walk in, sit down and pick up a glass of water and drink it. And <laughs> the piece of advice was you don't act like you're going into the room to sit down to pick up the glass of water and you drink it, 
you just go into the room, pick up the glass of water, sit down, and you drink it. I'm like, I, I understand that to you that makes sense, Sonny, but to us that sounds like someone that has a mental problem. Like that, it sounds like insanity. So I, I, I do think there's something there. Before we move on, what? Give me your five most recommended sci-fi books. I mean, I have a list on my blog of over a hundred that I've read. Don't want that. <clears throat> Don't want that. Want the five most recommended. I might have to look it up though. <laughs> well, just do it off the top of your head. I don't want. I don't want the the reference. I want the ones that come to front of mind. Yeah, my my first brain is quite feeble. I have to admit. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious that your come... first brain's atrophied because it's so fucking externalized. It's so atrophied, man. I'm telling you. It, my my wife is often like, Tiago, you you can't do without a second brain anymore. <laughs> okay, it is the buttress um, that holds you up now. It is. It is. So some of the ones that come to mind, I think my favorite of all time is Hyperion. Who's Hyperion, that I think it's Dan Simmons. It's being made into a TV show right now. Um, let's see. Uh, Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler was a, real, a big favorite. Exploring more of the biological side of science fiction instead of technology so much. Uh, and then, you know, some of the classics really are the best. Ender's Game... Uh, Ready Player One is a newer one. Uh, obviously, Dune. Obviously, the Asimov series. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to believe that the the best ones were the mainstream ones. They're the the most cited ones. But science fiction, yeah, you kind of need to read the classics. They really are kind of the best ones. Give me your understanding of the relationship between productivity and creativity. Because I had Chris Bailey that wrote Hyperfocus on the show. He gave me a, a very interesting understanding of this. So I'm, I'm keen to find out your thoughts as well. Yeah, for me, they're just two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> they're two sides of the same coin. They, they complement each other. They need each other. Uh, you can just imagine someone with 100% creativity and no productivity, 0% productivity they might have the most brilliant imagination and ideas and no one would ever know and it won't ever matter because not one piece of work will be finished. And then you have someone say full productivity, no creativity. They're basically a machine just churning out identical widgets. So I think, you know, productivity is about getting it done. Creativity is about getting it right. And you have to sort of oscillate and, and cycle between those or for like we were saying with explore and exploit in a given situation or at a given moment, which one, do, is this a, a situation for productivity or is it a situation for creativity? I love that. I really love the idea of of moving between the two. And this is something that Chris taught me as well when he came on the show about how if you look at an artist's workroom, it's very messy. There's <clears throat> cigarette ends and paint and open cans of stuff all over the – what is that doing? It's engendering a uh, an atmosphere of creativity. Now, if that was the environment in which that person tried to submit their tax returns, it's probably going to be suboptimal. They yes. want to go somewhere which really sort of infuses them with, okay, this is kind of structured and, and clean yeah. and, and rigid. Uh, and there was never a point – there was almost never a point where I'd presumed that I would actually want less focus and less creativity, uh, less productivity. I always presumed that just pressing harder on the pedal of productivity was the solution to pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. But it's not. And I think that uh, Alex Hormozzi has this great little aphorism where he says, um, beginners overvalue thinking and undervalue doing. Advanced mm -hmm. people do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that 
again, what we're talking about is getting from the tools that get you from 0 to 50 are not the same ones that are going to get you from 50 to 100. The explore and exploit paradigm is part of this. The productivity and creativity is part of this. The thinking and doing is part of this. Yes. This is something else maybe that we're seeing in the productivity space is everybody grows up and you get kids and, yeah. and you know, like Ali starts a business and, and David gets a girlfriend and, and stuff like <laughs> we're starting to see as people grow up, their requirements in life and the insights that they get from their productivity tools change as well. Oh, yeah. That's been fascinating for me to see. It's like just like you were saying, my cohort, the people that I'm, you know, learning and growing with going through these life stages and suddenly the work has to change. The advice they, the advice that I give has radically changed. Like I have probably a quarter or less of the free time that I had three years ago when we last talked, right? I have, since then, I, I got married, bought a house, had a kid, have a second kid on the way, got a dog, two cars. Like, like how, if I'm giving this, shilling the same advice as three years ago, I'm off my rocker. It has to change. But then of course, Part of that is your audience growing up with you, which is natural. But then this creates the entry point for the new generation, which we're just starting to see, you know, which is so exciting. For Dude, to- Gen Z productivity is going to suck. Like, don't <laughs> don't try and be diplomatic about it. Gen Z productivity is going to suck dick. <laughs> what are they going to do? They're going to tell you how to swipe through TikTok faster? <laughs> Not about that. Okay, right. So workflow of building a second brain, high level, it's this code um, that the... the what is it? Not an aphorism. Not it's like an a methodology. No, what's co- when you break something down? Oh, and it's acronym. The- acronym. Thank you, God. My first brain's wrecked as well. Take us through code. C is first. Yeah. Um, so this is basically the creative process, in my in my view, in my opinion. <clears throat> um, capturing just refers to writing things down. I mean, this has been a necessity for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Uh, there's a mountain of evidence that once you externalize, you have a thought, an idea, a theory, a prediction, you write it down, all these things happen. You gain objectivity, you gain distance, you can start to work with it, you can start to improve it, you can start to share it with others and get their feedback. Externalizing your ideas is just fundamental. The only thing that I'm saying is new is just in the past few years, digital notes apps alongside mobile devices and software in general has reached a point, I think the the balance of power with paper has shifted that now it is worth and justifiable to take it digital in the first place rather than write it down, down on paper and then try to digitize it later. How should people choose what they should capture as opposed to just ruthlessly indexing everything? Yes, this is one of those things. I think it, people might just need to go through a phase of hoarding <clears throat> because nothing that I can say... <laughs> seems to sink in until they have over collected way too much crap you know and are are doing the digital equivalent of like standing in their living room with like so many mountain piles of things and stuff that they can't even walk through their house um and it's fine actually in fact there's even like a life like speaking of life stages when i was in my early 20 all through my 20s i was collecting just everything i was just exploring right i was just taking so much in now I'm in my mid-late 30s and it's like, okay, I have 7,000 notes. 7,000 notes that I have, in, like not en masse, but individually curated and saved. So it's like, okay, I'm, gonna re- I'm reading an article or something, there's a new idea, okay. It's like, 
I could take a note on this, but is this this note really going to be the thing that like makes the difference, or should I just like capitalize on these seven thousand notes over here? <laughs> so I, I think people just need to learn, like try, like try capturing everything. But then I think what you eventually get to is being far more picky, far more discerning, like you said. And the best rule of thumb that I know is to save something that resonates with you, save something that moves you, like on a somatic intuitive emotional level is the best rule of thumb that i've encountered for deciding what to save there's a idea from tim ferris called the good shit sticks yes and that has been now this might be a cope for me because i don't have a particularly efficient personal knowledge management system you'll be episode 500 and something in four years of this show i'm just looking at my apple notes which is what i use 2247 notes and I don't know whether it is a cope, but certainly for me, just allowing the stuff that really, really does make me think, holy shit, I can't not write that down. That's the threshold. Now, my threshold yeah. probably could and should be a little bit lower than that. It probably, there probably are ideas that I've read that I valued that I've let go, but my requirements, given the amount that I have to put out on the show, three episodes a week, three clips a week, interviews and, and guesting that I do on other shows, other projects and things that I have going on outside of that, the uh, availability for space in terms of demand has to be matched by the supply in terms of what I'm prepared to put into it. Yeah. And for me, the I'll probably have sent it to other people on WhatsApp. I'll have probably taken a photo of whatever it is and gone, dude, this is unbelievable, or I've linked it to a, a few friends. And then I'll go, oh, yeah, I probably should, I probably should make that go in. Yeah. So again, there, I mean, is that an acceptable solution for you? Do you think yeah. if somebody has got a, a high overwhelm of information and not much time? Yeah. Raise the threshold. <clears throat> you know, th there's a couple beliefs I have that are kind of metaphysical and that I can't exactly prove, but <clears throat> for some reason have really helped me with this. Maybe someone out there can find some science to back this up. I, I, I embrace confirmation bias. I come up with harebrained ideas and then I try to look for evidence that. <laughs> but um, one of them is that kind of what you're saying with the good shit sticks, that your life is convergent. <clears throat> I think we tend to think our, our lives, especially those of us interested in many things with many pursuits, many curiosities, we think life is constantly leading us on this wild goose chase divergent thing. And I, I guess I've just chosen to believe, I think life tends to be convergent in almost in a sense, like you have a destiny, like there's certain interests and people and opportunities and just pathways that keep arising again and again. It's almost like reality is like, Hey, like we want this, it's inviting you. It wants you to go down this path just because of your nature, your personality, your, your background, your history, your genetics. So if I just believe that reality is conversion, it's almost like I only take a, a threshold that I sometimes use is I only take a note of an idea if it's tracked me down and demanded that I pay attention to it multiple times. Like only on the third or fourth encounter when it's like, you know, banging on my door and being like, take note of me. Then I'll be like, okay, fine. Clearly reality is trying to tell me something that this is important to me. Um, and then the other, the other one is that reality is fractal. <clears throat> this is something I, I think, I think there's probably science to this, but it's like patterns tend to be repeated at all scales. So like your life has a pattern 
that same pattern is repeated at the scale of a decade of your life. It's also repeated on the scale of a year. It's repeated in, in each relationship. It's like the, the way that you do one thing is the way you do everything. And so there's a kind of recurring fractal pattern in your life, which if that's true, it means you can only have to pay attention to one level. Like th there's principles that you want to discover, but the same principle is probably visible from the way you do laundry to the way you organize your computer, to the way you organize your room, to the way you organize your priorities, to the way you organize your relationships. It's like you only need to find the pattern at one level and that whole stack gets unlocked for you. This is something I've, I've never mentioned on any podcast because it's like really out there, but those are two kind of, uh, kind of hypotheses that i have <laughs> bro i am 100 percent in with you here and i don't i don't adhere to the sort of woo metaphysical horse shit that much i i fell in love with um amor fati right with sort of the love of fate and i really fell in love with that over the last couple of years because i started to see these consistent themes come up in my life mm -hmm. and obviously you're the common denominator between all of the experiences that you have right mm -hmm. all of my exes are uh, bitter, resentful assholes. It's like, what, all of them? All of them. Well, what do they have in common other than the fact that they were in a relationship with you? <laughs> Nothing. So either you're selecting them or you're causing them to be this way. And yeah. just realizing, I, I had this idea that I believe that most people's outcomes in life are going to occur no matter how much neuroses they apply to them. That all of the anxiety and all of the worry and all of the concern and the negative thought loops and the staying awake at night, mm -hmm. I think at most, at most, mm -hmm. nets you about an extra 10% in terms of mm -hmm. the outcomes that you can get in life. So another way to look at that would be to say, well, for the cost of perhaps between 5 and 10% of my outcomes in life, I could get rid of almost all of my anxiety and neuroses and thought loops yeah. and concern and sleepless nights. Okay, so what would my life be like if I, if I believed that my destiny was my destiny to have? What would yeah. my life be like if I already knew that the success or the family or the financial aspirations or whatever, if, if that was there? What would, just imagine what it would be like if I knew that the outcome was predestined. How would I behave? How would that change my daily experience of the things and the challenges and the concerns and the worries and stuff that I have? And that, yeah. I think, maps a little bit onto the, the, the fractal stuff, things at many levels, right? I've seen this. It's arisen a bunch of different times. It's banging on the door saying, hey, idiot, you need to, you need to take notice of this. It's occurred in the gym and in my health and in my relationship with my parents. And you go, oh, oh, right, okay, I, sorry. Yeah, that's an error from me. I'll, I will do better next time. And you yeah. do, and then you, that's one of the principles that you need to keep a hold of. But um, yeah. yeah, man, I'm 100% uh, with you on that. The two uh, borderline autistic people that love productivity talking about the woo metaphysics <laughs> delivering their <laughs> life direction in the universe. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> kind of the, the exact opposite of the idea of self-improvement. But I kind of I think every the opposite of every great truth is also true. So like, yeah, it's you can transform your life for sure. You can change anything. And most things are pretty much, you know, kind of not predestined, but they're just the natural consequence of cause and effect. The future is unfolding mostly based on the past. I, I think it's psychologically healthy, honestly. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. The fact that it is an opposite. What does it mean that 
I believe so much in personal sovereignty and agency and living your life by design, not by default. And yet at the same time, I'm saying that most of the outcomes that you get in life are probably going to occur no matter what you do. Uh, I'm not really too sure how I, how I square that circle. And yet I believe that both of those things are true at the same time. Maybe that's cognitive dissonance. I'm not too sure. Or maybe it's a cope, but it, it, it genuinely seems to be true. It seems to be true to me that the people that are good end up getting good results. I mean, uh, Charlie Munger's got that, um, no, sorry, it's Naval that says you don't need uh, spiritual energy to uh, deliver karma to you. Karma is just you repeating your habits and patterns over and over until the world gives you what you deserve. Whoa. There it is, you know? Like that, yeah. that, that is what it is. Are you the sort of person that continues to work hard? Okay, could you be working a bit more harder and a bit more efficient and a bit more productive or whatever? Yeah, probably. But the fundamental code right the foundation the base layer that you're writing upon is the fact that you're somebody that works hard and seeks out opportunities and is personable yeah. or nice or polite or giving or a team player or mm. has humor or whatever right like yeah. the traits don't matter as much as the attributes my dad my dad is not a, a, a an aphoristic sort of guy but he always used to say that form is temporary but class is permanent and it was the fact that the long-held attributes that you have will end up winning over time Whereas mm -hmm. the 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 individual fluctuations in the market, the noise yeah. doesn't doesn't matter as much as the signal. I think it depends a lot on the person too. Some there's a lot of people out in the world <clears throat> who could just use more agency, who could just could use dialing up the belief that they can change things. Other people, it needs to be dialed down. Yes. Some people are just wailing on something, thinking, "Let me just knock down this, you know, impregnable, you know, fortress." And they could, they could honestly probably, it sounds weird to say it, but use less agency. <laughs> Bro, I've got Jocko Willink coming on the show uh, this week, um, and I'm going to ask him about this because extreme ownership, right, is his idea. He's all about yes. radical personal responsibility. And I want to ask him, is it possible to take too much responsibility? What yeah. happens when you begin to take responsibility for things which aren't your responsibility? Well, that's part of perhaps the... the, the um, acknowledgement that you are able to step in and change things maybe that's uh, part of a masculine role as a man to be able to hoist the heaviest weight that you can find and carry it and such like and i go well yeah but after a while you actually end up that realizing you're not netting any benefit by doing this it's actually probably making you less effective yeah. and efficient so i'm really really interested to find out what what he uh what he says there okay me so too. me too <laughs> someone's someone's captured whatever it is they've got a note-taking app they've put it down somewhere next up what do they do <clears throat> so after you capture for a while it starts to pile up and you start to realize okay uh search is powerful but not someday maybe it will be adequate we won't have to organize anything <clears throat> but for for now you need to add some kind of order some kind of structure um, and I have a, a, a approach to this is called para, which is probably the most single most popular technique that I've ever talked about or written about or, or mentioned, uh, which I think the, the main principle there is instead of organizing as if you're a library, according to these broad academic subjects, you know, business, psychology, you know, botany, as if you're trying to, you know, create a university, you should, this is personal knowledge management, you should organize according to your projects and your goals. That's why it's worth putting in all this effort is to move forward your projects, achieve your goals. And so Para is basically about organizing content according to how actionable it is and when it's going to be actionable. Mm. How do you not 
get lost in organizing. You've got, you know, progressive summarization and, and, and stuff like that is a, another tool that you use. How do people, if they haven't got uh, caught up over indexing everything, how do they not get caught up over organizing everything? Yeah, it's like each step of code has its own benefits and its own pitfalls, right? <clears throat> you can definitely, there's traps all along the way. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's the fact that there's only four categories. That's it. These are big buckets, right? It's like, for a physical analogy, it's less like a filing cabinet where it's like, okay, where's the exact right little place for this to go? It's more like, you know, imagine you're decluttering your garage. You just have four giant buckets. And it's just like, this is important now. This will be important later. This might be important at some time. And this is not important. It's like these very clear cut, like uh, kind of simple decisions that you only have to make one decision, unlike tagging, by the way. Tagging, you have to like tag all the things that could be related to, all the things that connect. It's one decision, you make it one time, you take one action related to that decision, and you're done. When it comes to distilling, just mentioned there about progressive summarization, uh, what do you think most people get wrong when it comes to distilling and progressive summarization as well? Yeah, so this is the third letter, the D for distill. I think the main thing, and I talk about this in the book, um, we seriously underestimate how sensitive we are to the way that information is presented. The way, the format, the visual look. Uh, you know, if, if you're familiar, anyone who's familiar with web design <clears throat> gets exposure to this. You change one little headline, the color of a button, the spacing, the, the, the shade, the, these minute differences can easily produce double digit, you know, changes in how many people click, how many people stay on the page, how many people take action. So it's like we've realized this in the public sphere, but then in the private sphere, it's just looks awful. Like any note taking you see, except like Notion is the big exception, is just so badly designed. It's like the, this ugly text that is all bunched up together. Everything looks like it was designed by engineers because it was. <laughs> Uh, and so progressive summarization is really just one way of paying attention to the visual interaction. Can you look and see just the title of a note and instantly grasp at least what it's about approximately? If you decide it's relevant to you, can you scroll down and see one or two or three highlighted passages that tell you in a glance what is the main takeaway? What is the main point? What is this trying to say? And if you decide it's still relevant, you have all the other details right there in the surrounding note. That's that's what it is. It's it's the ability to perceive something quickly with little energy and then immediately be able to take action on it. So is that your job now to give your future self a gift of a well-distilled, progressively summarized document that reduces everything down to their most component parts? That's right. That's right. There was this, uh, you mentioned there about uh, the changes that you can do in UX and web design. I got this statistic from Seth Stevens Davidowitz's new book. A designer famously quit Google because it frequently ignored the intuition of trained designers in favor of data. The final straw for the designer was an experiment that tested 41 shades of blue on an ad link on Gmail to collect data on which one would lead to the most clicks. The designer may have been frustrated, but the data experiment netted Google an estimated $200 million per year in additional revenue. That is, cr I think I've heard of this. That is a, an insane story. 
I love that stuff, man. Okay, so we've distilled stuff down. We've uh, progressively summarized the final the final step E. Yeah, so this is the it's the finale. It's the last one. I think the most important one. Like, <clears throat> you know, the question always in the back of people's minds, especially as they get into the weeds of this, is like, why? Why am I doing all this? For for what? For what purpose? And I think it ultimately comes down to self-expression. You know, we're all, as knowledge workers today, professional communicators. Like, isn't that what we're doing all day? We're communicating through through all these different means and channels with various people. I mean, we live in a communication-centric world, and you have something inside of you. Maybe it's your story, it's a message, it's ideas, it's opinions, decisions, that you basically all the, out, all the outcomes you're trying to create in your life depend on your ability to communicate what, what that is inside of you in a way that's succinct, that is well-supported and credible, that is compelling, that people want to pay attention to, and ultimately that they want to act on. That's Self-expression is the purpose to create a second brain. What if people say, well, I don't have a blog or a podcast or a Substack. stack. Uh, where can I express my ideas? I'm just a, a curious person. Yeah, this is a common thing people say. I think probably because they see me as an online content creator and many of my examples and kind of anecdotes are based on that. But I would just push back on the idea that anyone is not a creator. You know, <clears throat> I have this definition of, cre- of being a creator that I love, which is to bring something true, good, or beautiful into the world. To bring something that is true, factual, scientific, effective, that is good, a story, a, tr- a truth, some meaning, a relationship, or beautiful, right? Like inspiring, aesthetically pleasing, all that stuff. By that standard, I mean, when you host a dinner party, you're being a creator. When you, you know, make a schedule for your kid's summer, you're being a creator. When you lobby your local city council for funding for the local park, you're being a creator. It's funny, I have a lot of these like suburban examples of like being a suburban dad because that's how I'm creating a lot these days. But even those kind of mundane everyday things are very informationally intensive. I mean, to vote in your local elections, the amount of of information that I had to make sense of to just even understand who the candidates were. I mean, to plan a vacation is practically a, you know, a part-time job in some cases. Um, I mean, even to get together with my friends, to get together with your friends in your thirties is like a serious project. (laughs) I suppose as well, one thing that almost the vast majority of people are going to have is maybe raising a kid. So you find out that you and your partner are pregnant and that you're going to, you've got eight months. Okay. I don't know how babies work. Yeah. How do they work? And what do we need for the, the room? And should we go for a wireless or a wired in detector for the CCTV? And, you know, yeah. all of those things. Um, that, that, that is the most normal solution or the most normal requirement, sorry, that I could think of for someone needing to express on the other side. You're going yeah. to go through all of these different review sites and YouTubes giving you the different details about is it a pullout cot from the side of the bed or is it a fixed cot that goes on the edge of the bed? Is it yeah. whatever, whatever. This is not from personal experience. This is my business partner, me uh, vicariously living the pain of his three kids <laughs> through him. Um Going back to one thing that I can see as a potential stumbling block for people when they start to index this information, um, discoverability. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to so there for me to find the study from Seth Stevens Davidowitz, I had to search Google. Now I just put Google in, and thankfully I knew it was about Google, and it came up. But that's probably not the most. Oh, I mean, is that sophisticated? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, you know, I think this is a great filter. Is if there's anything that Google can find fast, reliably, just depend on Google for it, right? Like, you know, these sort of factual questions and answers. You know, what is the population of France? You know, what year did this book come out? Uh, when was this historical figure born? These kind of things that you will you will instantly, with one search, top result, find the answer. Don't use your precious human, you know, manual time and attention to save those in your second brain. What's the point? Mm, yeah, so I do what, like that. What can Google not find is, first of all, feelings. You can Google the answer to a question, but you can't Google a feeling. Right? This comes back to why you should capture things that move you. Images, stories, metaphors. Uh, you know, songs, music, paintings, things that you can't just do a Google, you know, you can't do a Google search. Oh, a, a an image that's going to inspire me in exactly this way. Uh, things that are filtered through your experience, right? Like lessons you, hard-won lessons you learned from making that mistake, making that error, or you learned from a mentor, or you learned from a colleague. Things that maybe everyone knows them, or a lot of people know them, but will have a special resonance for you because it was through your experience. Um, I think you should not try to compete with Google. They're going to they're going to they're going to win those use cases, but fill in the gaps basically with your your second brain. What tools do people need, or what tools do you use to get this moving? You know, the sec the the central one is a is a digital notes app. <clears throat> digital notes apps are the best by far. The best you can actually implement the second brain in all sorts of different systems. But I think what's important about digital notes apps is they're ubiquitous. <clears throat> you can have them on your computer, on your tablet, on your smartphone, on your watch, and soon on your glasses. Um, they're just everywhere. Uh, they're casual. This is the key thing, right? Some people, sometimes people want to have like a database with this very precise data entry procedure and all these, you know, fields. Note taking, the whole reason note taking is powerful is that it's messy, it's spontaneous, it is chaotic. It doesn't follow its free form, right? And dig- digital notes apps are almost like the only category of software that is that way. Software doesn't tend to be free form, right? You want that kind of open canvas. And they're free, you know? You don't need to pay anything. Use Apple Notes or Android, whatever the Android equivalent is on your phone. Use Evernote, which has a free tier. Use Simple Note. Uh, most of these apps, if not all of them, have a free option. Start there. You know, it's like, don't, don't, don't even come. This is the thing. It's like maybe this isn't for you. I'm not saying digital note taking is the answer to everyone and all their problems. It might be just an answer for some people for some kinds of problems. Just test it out using a free app on your phone, and if it's successful, just take it from there. If it wasn't for the fact that you were so heavily already invested into Evernote, would you have moved across to something else, or is this? Are you grandfathered in with Evernote, or would you be tempted by Notion if you were starting again? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's funny. I've already migrated a couple times. I started originally on Microsoft Word, if you can believe it, then Google Docs, then Evernote. So my expectation, I mean, no technology lives forever, right? There's generations that mature and then kind of pass away. 
Um, I, I'm sure at some point or another, I'm going to have to move on from Evernote. It's going to be, it's going to get shut down. It's going to be acquired. It's going to become obsolete. Um, I've been testing Obsidian, Obsidian, because there's this kind of newest wave of very sexy, very trendy apps, sometimes called networked thinking apps or link-based apps. Like the three main ones are Rome, Obsidian, and LogSeq that people are just raving about. They're crazy about. What's unique about, about I, them? They, oh man, it's really hard to summarize, but basically it's a completely new paradigm for personal knowledge management. It's ba- instead of being based on a hierarchy, folders within folders within folders, it's based on a graph, much like the internet, right? It, it's not an incremental improvement. It's a completely different paradigm. But from what I've seen, it has a long way to go. I mean, I was using Obsidian. It took me two hours of intense troubleshooting to figure out how to sync this note that I just took on my phone to my computer. And I'm a you know reasonably tech savvy person. Like I tend to wait until a technology is mature. It's it's been around for ten years. So around like 2030, I think I should be adopting the new paradigm of Notes apps. <laughs> That's funny. So one thing that I wish I'm a avid Apple Notes user. I've tried, and there's some stuff that have gone in that's gone in Evernote. There's some stuff which goes in Notion. Um, the only things that I would bring across to Apple Notes, if I could right now, would be uh, linking notes within notes. Mm-hmm. I think that the ability of Notion to do that, where you can nest kind of visually and you can mm-hmm. hyperlink, is phenomenal. Uh, that, that's very, very intuitive and makes an awful lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And toggles, being able to snap bunches of batches of text closed so that you can just display things in a neater way. But Apple Notes is not far off, man. I mean, for a kind of the most simple use case, it's absolutely rapid. If you're typing on your phone, as soon as you press return, you'll see it appear on the screen in front of you on your laptop. It's yeah. really, really good. And uh, I think that there's some updates coming with iOS 16, which yeah. looks pretty cool. And if they can get anywhere close to those functions that I've just mentioned there, I think it's. I think there'll be no reason for me to change, at least not yet. I would start, I, this is what I, I, I recommend to people, start with the default pre-installed notes app. Really, because it's like with this whole practice, the main thing is whether you do it or you don't, right? Doing it in any degree to any capacity with whatever standard will give you most of the benefits, whereas not doing it will give you none. This is why it's so important that it be frictionless. What frictionlessness does is it helps you cross over from the doing nothing to doing something, the zero to one, right? And if you need the, the the built-in notes app on your phone to do that, then you know more power to you. I think it's perfect. What are five of your most used apps when it comes to your either daily productivity or even entertainment stuff? What are the things that you rely on the most in terms of apps? Yeah, you know, there's kind of a basic toolkit. <clears throat> I wrote about these in in a blog post on getting to inbox zero. But there's kind of this like very, it's, it's almost like you buy a toolkit and it has like a hammer, a screwdriver. There's like five things that if it doesn't have that, you're like, what the heck? It's like my to-do list app, which is Things, which I've used for 10 years. It's my Notes app, which is Evernote, also been on there for 10 years. It's my Relater app, Instapaper. I think I've been on there six or seven years. Uh, it is my calendar app. I use one called BusyCal, which is just basically a client for Google Calendar. Uh, and then it's the email app, Superhuman. Those five are like my world. They're they're as second nature to me as like my 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 arms and my legs. I I like don't think about them. I just like 
operate them as like an extension of my nervous system. <laughs> Convince me on busy Cal and superhuman because I have a lot of calendar problems and a lot of email problems. Yeah, so let's see. Busy Cal, I just love that I never have to think about it. It's uh, calendaring is this funny thing. It's, it's kind of t- ironically timeless. Um, for a while, I was using uh, Woven, which was this like up and coming, new, very sexy thing. Of course, like all up and coming, trendy productivity apps got acquired or something, got shut down. And I'm like, this always happens. This is why I hate adopting new tech. Um, BusyCal, it's just made, you can tell by just like very nuts and bolts, designers and engineers just trying to solve like, you know, these little mundane, like just stupid problems. Like when you invite someone to a calendar entry and then you move it to a different day, does it like resend something like little things like that, that just make your life like just better. Um, and I just never have to think about it. It just does its job. That's, that's the pitch. Okay. Superhuman. (laughs) Yeah, so Superhuman is a bit harder because it's, you know, kind of expensive for a productivity app. Uh, I mean, I'm a little bit biased here because the founder of Superhuman, uh, he told me that my article on reaching inbox zero was one of the inspirations for the product. He said they get that article, they, they send it to every new hire as like, this is our philosophy. So when he told me that, and then I started using the software, I was like, okay, this is if someone just custom designed an email app for me. Because they kind <laughs> of did. So I was I was helpless. The 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 sales pitch was I couldn't turn it down. And so it just it just makes the process basically what Superhuman does is it makes the process of clearing your email into the most hyper efficient, get it done go from the top to the bottom process you can imagine versus how most people use email, which is as a combined CRM, task management system, reminder system, note-taking system, to-do list, all these things. It just is hyper-focused on that one use case. Give me five uh, physical items as well that you don't think that you could live without. Ooh, five physical items. Um, I mean, a paper notebook. People are surprised to hear this, but there's certain situations such as conversations. When I'm meeting with someone in purpose, in person, I tend to take physical notes because I've just found having a device is distracting. Uh, Let's see, what else? My trusty Hydro Flask water bottle, essential, wide mouth so that I can get ice in there. This like two or three X's my water consumption each day. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, what else? What about the chair? What chair have you decided on at the moment? I'm currently in the market for a new office chair. And I sent Ali a text the other day asking him whether he was still with Harmon Carden. And he was like, yeah, I am, but I've changed from this thing to this thing. What are you sat on? You know what's really funny, Chris? I, when it comes to physical things, I am the furthest thing from an optimizer. I, I, don't, I don't get into it. I don't have a preferred chair or pen or monitor or keyboard. Like Ali gets into this stuff, right? Yeah. I have this weird thing where it's almost like I'm so in the digital world. I have these these very specific preferences about the digital world, but the physical world, I'm kind of like, I, I don't really live, I live in the world of ideas and I live in the virtual world. I, I barely am present here in the physical plane. <laughs> yes, that's that, that that kind of rings true as well. So let's say that someone sort of likes the idea of this, but thinks, look, I've already gone through the process of having to read a book um, that was fairly effortful and I'm, concerned about extra effort on the back end of going through and taking notes and progressive summarization and all of this stuff what are the most important things of making this whole process or productivity overall less effortful do you think 
I think it's giving yourself permission to do what you like. Just move toward what excites you. Move toward what moves you. Um, th this is a this is a deep. It's it's funny. I, I teach this course, this in, intensive four week program. You know all this, all all this material. And honestly, I think it's mostly about unlearning, not so much about learning. Like I take people through this process. They have to unlearn everything they know about note taking, which is all based in school and all the problems that come with that, all the baggage. It's what they learned at work in corporations, which is a whole other set of baggage. It's what they learned from their parents, right? And what we tend to learn from all these external authorities is what you care about doesn't matter. What you find interesting is probably not important. You need to spend your time and attention on things that someone else has said are important. It's like we're just systematically brainwashed into ignoring our feelings, our desires, what gives us pleasure, what excites our curiosity. And a lot of being successful in this is relearning that. You know that you do sound like Miyamoto Musashi or something at the moment. You're like this sort of old Zen master that's <laughs> been away in a cave on the top of But I, I genuinely do agree. And there's elements, you know, especially talking about the um, repeating themes that you see that kind of spiral up and spiral down your life at different gradients and, I definitely see this starting to come through for me as well. So I often wonder how many of the insights that we get around productivity or personal development or self-growth, how many of them are born of the efforts that we've gone through and how many of them just come along for the ride as a byproduct of getting older. And I think that a big chunk of them actually adjust that with a little bit of a flavoring on the top of, oh, well, I found this one or I developed oh, yeah. this one. For sure. The real second brain is the... The things you learn, the relationships you have, the, the experiences. friends you made along the way. <laughs> Look, Tiago Forte, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to check out all of the stuff that you do and read the blog posts that we've referenced today, where should they go? Yeah, you can find everything at buildingasecondbrain.com. I love it. Tiago, until next time, man. Appreciate it, Chris. Chris.